The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. He's the firefighter and the arsonist. This is Thursday, June 27th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. About 100 fires each year are set by arsonists who are also firefighters. Arsonists are usually white men who come from a bad home life, specifically having a hostile father and often an overprotective mother, according to the FBI profile. The arsonist has an abnormal sexual attraction to fire in many cases. The arsonist gets off on watching stuff burn, but in many cases it's just the thrill of the blaze and the power it carries. The arsonist firefighter has one or more of these qualities and one other personality disorder, hero syndrome. They get off on setting fires and they get off on putting them out. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. This past week can be remembered as the week the president of this country ordered an attack on Iran and then changed his mind at the last minute. And as the week the president ordered a mass deportation sweep and then changed his mind at the last minute. In both reversals, Trump in the end claimed credit for preventing the terrible things that he himself had ordered, much as he'd done with Mexican tariffs the week before. In each case, he bragged about putting out fires that he had started. These reversals serve as a distraction from the subpoenas and the court fights over the stonewalling of his administration against a legal and crucial congressional investigation. And both the week's wavering decisions were made by the same self-proclaimed stable genius. The president was changing foreign policy horses in the middle of the stream. He did not have a confirmed defense secretary when stuff got real with Iran this week. He wasn't even sure if the acting defense secretary he'd chosen to replace the last acting secretary would be his choice for the permanent position. When things got nasty with Iran, Trump finally decided Army Secretary Mark Esper is the right choice after all. Esper would seem to be a surprisingly good choice, a military veteran who'd become a top civilian official at the Pentagon and a congressional advisor, and ultimately as the civilian head of the Army. Esper comes most immediately, as did the previous acting secretary, from a defense contractor. The difference is that predecessor, Patrick Shanahan, had no military or government experience and most importantly was a security risk as a blackmail target over his messy domestic life. This time, Trump may have lucked into a guy who's right for the job, as was James Mattis before he resigned in disgust. It was in the midst of all this turmoil at the Pentagon that Iran had attacked two oil tankers in the Strait of Hormuz and shot down an American spy plane, an unmanned drone. If Trump came into office intending to whack away at the hornet's nest that is Iran, he has done all the right things. As promised in the campaign, he pulled the U.S. out of the six-nation deal with Iran that kept it from producing nuclear weapons, an agreement Iran upheld and continued to uphold even after the U.S. departure. If Trump wants peace with Iran, as he sometimes says, getting back into the deal or a new one very much like it is the single best option, an option Trump predictably will never take. Along the way, Trump has put the squeeze on Iran with increasing sanctions, more than a thousand sanctions now altogether, even punishing our closest allies when they continue to do business with the Persian nation. 
He's now sent more than 1,000 new troops to the region to join the 1,500 already there. Trump's policies on Iran put us back where we were before the nuclear deal, maybe worse. Agitated by the U.S., Iran says it could now make more and more powerful nuclear materials inside of a week. It says it won't because of its Islamic faith, but that it could. If Iran were to return to the development of nuclear weapons, other nations in the region would follow suit, setting off a new nuclear arms race. Trump is now calling, occasionally, for talks between him and Iran's supreme leader. The Ayatollah's having none of this, saying he won't meet with this guy, especially not now. Not now that Trump's imposed sanctions on Iran's supreme leader and other top Iranian officials have taken effect. Iran says the door now to diplomacy with the U.S. is permanently closed, calling Trump's policies idiotic, dangerous, desperate, confused, outrageous, and mentally retarded. Iran says it cannot, that no one can, negotiate while being threatened. Trump, angered by the personal insults, repeated his threat of overwhelming force and obliteration if Iran attacks anything American. Obliteration again. Now, even when Iran's extreme vandalism does not take any American lives, apparently, after earlier calling such a response disproportionate. And all of this happened because of Trump's misguided campaign to promise to ditch the Iran nuclear deal. Otherwise, none of this would be happening. And what's happening is dangerous. Two countries that say they don't want war are edging closer to it. Trump's first reaction to the shoot-down of that expensive, unmanned spy plane came in a tweet, of course. Iran made a very big mistake, he exclaimed with punctuation. Later, he would say that perhaps it was a mistake, some general or somebody, he said, who'd shot down the drone by accident. There's evidence that may be true, according to a former Army vice chief of staff. Over the weekend, the Iranian military said the drone's violation of its airspace could have been a mistake, echoing Trump's de-escalation of the dialogue. Earlier, Trump had also played down the oil tanker attacks, calling them, quote, very minor. But Iran was clearly engaged in extreme vandalism, taking no lives but acting out against the increasing sanctions. Trump has now responded to that misbehavior by turning up the sanctions more and by staging a cyber attack on Iran's missile centers and by threatening Iran with, his word, obliteration. After the attack that wasn't, Trump tried to explain what had just happened. He said the U.S. was cocked and loaded for a fight. The expression is locked and loaded, but misspeaking is what he does best. We had learned that morning that Trump had ordered a strike on Iran and then called it off with 10 minutes to spare. The planes were in the air when the mission was stopped. Trump denies this, and that's where his version of events differs from that of our U.S. military. Trump also claims it was at that 11th hour that he finally asked how many people would die in the attack that was about to occur. Insiders say the military always informs a commander-in-chief up front how many people would die. Was Trump not listening when they said that? Was someone afraid to tell him so they didn't? They know how he hates hearing downsides. Insiders say Trump dug the power of ordering the strike and the power of calling it back in the final hour. That may be the arsonist firefighter in him. I thought about it for a second, he told Chuck Todd, continuing. They shot down an unmanned drone, and here we are with 150 dead people, probably within a half hour after I said go ahead. Trump said the response he had ordered was disproportionate to what Iran had done. And although true, military sources say the casualty count would have been 
much lower than 150. In canceling the strike order, the president was admitting it was a mistake to order that attack, a mistake he barely prevented 10 minutes before it was to happen. With allies and adversaries alike, the credibility of the U.S. and this president eroded further with this attack that did not happen. It also doesn't help that Trump slams his own people, the ones he chose to help shape his foreign policy, a likely reference to National Security Advisor John Bolton. These people want to push us into a war, and it's so disgusting, Trump said to the Wall Street Journal, even though he selected these people, and he, at first, followed their advice. The Trump administration is all over the road, offering up everything from peace talks to obliteration. His policies on North Korea and Venezuela are equally unclear. In the eyes of the world, the U.S. is now more confused and less confident. Even some of his Republican supporters in Congress say backing down from that attack makes the U.S. and Trump look weak. In another departure from normal, congressional leaders were not notified in advance of the attack, at least not in the Democrat-controlled House. And even though the ordered mission was never completed, news of it whacked the hornet's nest one more time. Combined with new sanctions from Trump, the withdrawn attack had angered Iran even more. And this escalation to the brink of war has grown since the swearing-in of Donald Trump. Turning up the heat on Iran hasn't worked. Turning it up more can be expected not to work even more. Confusion, as this week has proven, can be equally dangerous. I'm not looking for war, Trump told Chuck Todd, and if there is, it'll be obliteration like you've never seen before. He also said he can foresee a day the U.S. is Iran's best friend and thanked Iran for not shooting down a U.S. plane with 38 people on board a plane Iran says it also had in its sights when it shot down that drone. Trump says he would like to, quote, start all over with Iran and meet with its leaders without preconditions beyond no nuclear weapons. Foreign policy experts say Trump's frenetic bipolar policies put America's national security at risk. And when Iran said the U.S. drone was in its airspace and the U.S. was saying the drone was over international airspace, Americans surprised themselves at being unsure about which government to believe. About that cyber attack the U.S. launched against Iran instead of using explosives? This cyber attack was not like the one the U.S. staged against Russian trolls cutting their internet for a few days around the midterm elections. The U.S. attack on Iran's missile control and command centers was devastating. Real, long-lasting damage was done without bloodshed. This is not something they can put back together easily, said an off-the-record official to the Washington Post. Iran had already, and has for years, tried to hack U.S. military ships in the region, the U.S. is now warning the energy industry to be on watch as they have become likely targets. A cybersecurity chief at Homeland Security put it this way, Iranian actors are not just your garden-variety, run-of-the-mill data thieves. These are the guys that come in and burn the house down. In this skirmish between the U.S. and Iran, even though we can't see them or hear them, shots are already being fired. Trump has also stepped up sanctions on Cuba the notoriously impoverished nation saw hope toward the end of the Obama administration as doors opened for travel and tourism and hope appeared that U.S. sanctions against that little communist country would begin to evaporate. Cuba's economy began to perk up. But those hopes washed away when Trump took office. Travel and tourism have now been shut down.
The relationship between the U.S. and Cuba grew tense again and got exponentially worse this week as Trump slapped new tough sanctions on Cuba for its support of Venezuela's dictator. These tough sanctions have created shortages of food and other goods in Cuba. The U.S., once a ray of hope for that country, is now the cause of Cuba's pain, partly because of the Trump administration's unclear policy on Venezuela. Trump still won't say if he'll hold Saudi Arabia responsible for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. He also disagrees with the United Nations expert who this week called for more investigation. I think it's been already heavily investigated, said Trump in his weekend interview. He said he'd prefer to take their money, meaning he wishes not to endanger American weapons sales to the Saudis. And the beautiful, excellent letters just keep flowing between Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. On Monday, Kim announced he'd gotten an excellent letter from Trump and that he's seriously considering what Trump had to say in that letter. Earlier this month, Trump announced he'd gotten a beautiful letter from Kim, ending the ghosting they'd engaged in since the failure of their summit in February. Kim's government news agency quotes the leader as describing Trump's response as, quote, of excellent content. Kim is further quoted as praising Trump for courage and judgment displayed in that letter. Kim saying he would, quote, seriously contemplate the interesting content. Even when they're not speaking to each other, Trump and Kim consistently speak kindly of each other and continue to write beautiful and excellent letters. Stay tuned. Today, Trump is in Japan for the latest G20 summit at which world leaders will talk about trade, North Korea, and Iran. Trump will meet there with Chinese President Xi Jinping, and tomorrow he'll meet again privately with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Their first chat since the Helsinki summit at which Trump said he believed Putin over U.S. intelligence on the subject of election interference. Ahead of this trip, the president accused our ally Germany of treating the U.S. worse than does China and accused German Chancellor Angela Merkel of hating Quote, the United States, perhaps worse than any person I've met, end quote. Merkel does not hate the U.S., but she has a powerful dislike for Donald Trump. On his departure, Trump was asked by a reporter what he'll say to Putin about interfering in our elections. What I say to him is none of your business, snapped Trump. He's wrong. It is your business. It is very much our business and... More evidence he is unfit to serve as our president. A military attack on Iran wasn't the only order Trump reversed this week. Again, at the last minute, Trump called off a nationwide roundup of undocumented people for deportation, a plan that had struck fear and dread in immigrant families nationwide. And then the 2,000 families who'd been targeted found out on Saturday that the raids planned for Sunday had been delayed by at least two weeks. Trump said that's how long he was giving Congress, Republicans and Democrats, to stem the flood of asylum seekers rushing the border. In truth, that's how long ICE and border agents needed to prepare. As outlined here before, remedies include helping the poor in their home countries so they've no reason to come here and to punish U.S. employers who offer the jobs that migrants seek. But don't expect Congress to agree on that, not in two weeks, not in the two weeks Trump's given them. His unrealistic deadline makes Trump's demand all but impossible to carry out, and failure to meet that deadline is unacceptable to the president. If not, he warned, deportations start. So the fear and panic in migrant communities finds no relief in Trump's two-week delay. Solve it, Trump was saying, or the immigrants get it. 
The migrant community did what it could to prepare itself for Sunday's expected raids. With help from the clergy and the ACLU, it continues to prepare. Emergency hotlines have been established. Volunteers have been recruited. Notices have been posted in print and on social media explaining what to do if immigration officials come to the door. Churches in 20 states have organized what they're calling a sanctuary network. The volunteers will get migrant children to their doctor's appointments and to summer school classes. I want to give the Democrats every last chance to quickly negotiate simple changes to asylum and loopholes, tweeted Trump as he restated his two-week time limit. Probably won't happen, wrote Trump, but worth a try, adding two weeks and big deportation begins. Deportation, like pulling out of the Iran deal, was a Trump campaign promise. He's still plugging away at both. There is a stench in the detention centers for migrant children, partly because there is no soap. There were also no toothbrushes or beds. Kids sleep on concrete floors covered in those shiny emergency blankets while the overhead lights stay on all night. Sleep deprivation is a form of torture. Infants are being cared for by seven- and eight-year-old fellow migrants whose own clothes are stained with mucus and tears. Most have gone a month without being able to shower. Their hair is matted, their clothing is filthy, no laundry, no clean clothes. Toddlers without diapers wear soiled pants or no pants, and teenaged mothers wear tops and dresses stained with blotches of breast milk, as if the trauma of their journey and their abduction weren't enough. There is a stench, said one of the lawyers who visited the facility at Clint, Texas, on behalf of the Immigrants' Rights Clinic at Columbia Law School. The kids at Clint are locked in their cells for nearly the entire day. They have set aside playtime to focus on their own survival. Some are quarantined because they are sick with contagious diseases. The drinking water tastes like bleach. They are all hungry, every child, subsisting on instant oats for breakfast, instant noodles for lunch, a frozen burrito for dinner, and occasionally some cookies and juice. And it's exactly the same menu every day, day after day. Many of the children say they are too hungry to sleep as the overhead lights reflect off their aluminum blankets throughout the night. And this cruelty was laid bare this week when a government lawyer argued in federal court that the government should not be required to give kids toothbrushes or soap or towels or showers or real blankets or even a half-night's sleep. It fell upon Justice Department lawyer Sarah Fabian to march into court on behalf of the Trump administration to offer the legal argument that the law does not require that the government provide immigrant kids with toothbrushes or soap or sleep. Fabian now wishes she had presented her argument much differently to say that she was not in favor of denying kids hygiene, just that the administration hadn't broken the law because toothbrushes aren't in the law. For Fabian, a registered Democrat, the timing of her assignment could not have been worse. We had just learned from those immigration lawyers who had just toured that facility in Clint only to find unimaginable conditions. Between what we had learned about Clint and what we had heard from the Trump administration about what it did not legally have to do added up to a level of cruelty that even some Republicans find outrageous. And then it went to a whole new level when we learned that border officials were refusing to accept donations from concerned Americans who came by the thousands offering diapers, food, water, blankets, clothing, soap, toothpaste, and toothbrushes. Border agents are refusing donations, saying they have everything they need. Thank you. 
And then we learned the Trump administration has been holding these children in these squalid conditions when it would have been kinder, easier, and cheaper to turn them over to their relatives here in the United States. The lawyers who toured the Trump prison camp for children at Clint, Texas, met a little girl who wore a bracelet that read U.S. Parent, followed by a phone number. The lawyer called the number and spoke with the girl's desperate parents who had never been informed where their daughter was being held. All it took was a phone call that no border agent bothered to make. How many more like her? The immigration lawyers who toured Clint say U.S. border officials are making no effort to release children to their caregivers, keeping them instead warehoused in filth. The law says unaccompanied migrant children can only be held for 72 hours. For many, those hours have turned into months. It all adds up to unabashed, unbelievable, unacceptable cruelty. Cruelty appears to be the point of it all. Cruelty to force the Democrats to let Trump have his wall and to have his way on the treatment of migrants and their children. Justice Department lawyer Sarah Fabian says she understands the anger that has since been directed at her since that day in court. But she says she shares many people's anger and fear over the future of our country, and she has promised to do her best to try to make it better. It is true. The law does not currently include the words soap or toothbrush or clean clothes, but it does require that detention facilities be safe and sanitary. As he scolded lawyer Sarah Fabian, the judge said, I find it inconceivable the government would say that is safe and sanitary. Inconceivable before Trump, perhaps. Journalist Michael Scott Moore, who spent 977 days as a hostage of Somali pirates, tweeted, The Somali pirates gave me soap and toothpaste. David Rode of the New York Times, who was a prisoner of the Taliban for seven months and ten days, tweeted, The Taliban gave me soap and toothbrushes. The Trump administration isn't as thoughtful as the Taliban, however, or Somali pirates for that matter. Donald Trump is using the cruel treatment of children as leverage to get more money from Congress to push his anti-immigration agenda to its apex and to pay for the rest of his border wall. Nearly all the migrant children in Clint, Texas, 249 of them, were moved on Monday to El Paso to be housed in tents at the Trump prison camp there. But then, on Tuesday, a hundred of the kids were sent back to those horrible conditions in Clint, back to a facility built for adult criminals, not for children. Democrats in the House are divided, as usual. Some want to rush money to the border to deal with the humanitarian crisis there made worse by Trump's immigration policies. Others are afraid to give Trump's immigration officials more money, fearing it'll just be spent on more cruelty, that it will continue to line the pockets of the private contractors who are providing the detention facilities, including the tent cities where new arrivals to this country are concentrated into camps. The compromise to include in that emergency aid bill rules requiring soap and toothbrushes and more. But the Senate, controlled by Republicans, has made it clear that it will not pass a bill from the House favoring its own bipartisan bill that does little or nothing to address conditions for migrant children. The House version reduces the cruelty. The Senate version does not. The Senate has now passed its own version, which the House has promised to reject. The White House says Trump would veto the House version outright. 
he would sign the Senate bill, but reluctantly. The White House says the protections for children, even in the watered-down Senate version, are too restrictive for border agents. Trump says he wants a bill that spends more on border security and less on toothbrushes, confirming Democrats' worst fears. And that is where things stand today, as Congress shuts down for its annual Independence Day recess. And just as we've had no solid Pentagon leadership in the midst of the Iran crisis, there has been chaos at our two immigration agencies since the recent shakeup that followed the departure of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. Every major position is filled with an acting administrator. In the midst of their own humanitarian crisis, no one at the top levels of these agencies has been vetted or confirmed by Congress. No one. To make things tipsier, the acting head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement resigned this week in the midst of his agency's scandalous neglect of young children. So he's being replaced by the acting head of the Border Patrol of Customs and Border Protection, Mark Morgan. Morgan will be replaced back at CBP by his deputy, who will become the new unconfirmed acting director there. And then the CPB's Mark Morgan becomes the new acting director at ICE. Here's why that matters. Mark Morgan got his old job at CPB the way a number of top administration officials got theirs, by auditioning on Fox News as a commentator. And it was there that Mark Morgan said, I've looked at their eyes, Tucker, and I've said, that is soon to be an MS-13 gang member. Yes, my fellow Americans, Mark Morgan claims he can tell by looking into a kid's eyes just once whether that kid is going to be a killer. It's unequivocal, he says, meaning indisputable. So please refrain from disputing Mark Morgan. Today, Mr. Morgan is no longer the head of one of our main two immigration agencies. He's now the head of the other one. A man whose policies have ripped babies from their mother's arms and torn families apart, Trump told Telemundo anchor Jose Diaz-Balart, I brought the families together. I'm the one that put them together. That is a monumental lie. In the year since Trump signed an order to end his own policy of family separations, another 700 kids were put into detention after being taken from their parents. An ACLU lawyer says he's seen cases in which toddlers were ripped from their parents over a traffic violation. And that is in violation of a federal court order prohibiting the separation of families and a violation of Trump's own promise to stop a year ago. And it belies his claim that he's the one who put families together. But this country's asylum officers last night rose up against a Trump immigration policy, the one that forces migrants to remain in Mexico while they wait for their cases to come up in a U.S. court. The officers say Trump's remain in Mexico policy threatens the migrants' lives. The workers' union has filed a friend of the court brief in the ACLU's lawsuit challenging the shipping of 12,000 asylum seekers back to Mexico so far this year. The nation's union-organized asylum officers are drawing a line on what orders they will and will not follow, telling the court that the Trump policy they have been ordered to carry out is, quote, fundamentally contrary to the moral fabric of our nation. In a huge blow to the Trump administration, the United States Supreme Court ruled this morning against the administration's plan to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. 
Earlier this week, a federal district judge in Maryland ruled new evidence had come to light in the lawsuit to stop that citizenship question. That new evidence includes hard drives containing documents by the apparent inspiration of the campaign to add the citizenship question. Its creator, now dead, was an expert in gerrymandering for Republicans and wrote that that citizenship question would take gerrymandering to the next level, guaranteeing Republican control of government. It was also Thomas Hoffeller's idea to sell the citizenship question as a way to shore up the Voting Rights Act. It actually has the opposite effect. But on Hoffeller's recommendation, that is exactly what the Trump administration's been saying to explain its reasoning behind adding that question. And we have since learned that Hoffeller was in direct contact with a current top Trump administration census official as far back as 2015. That was the new evidence the lower court judge in this case says had been brought to light leading to today's Supreme Court decision, a devastating decision for Trump and his Republicans. The White House, meanwhile, has invoked executive privilege, refusing to turn over documents to the House Oversight Committee that's investigating the source and the reason for this question. Another day, another stone wall. The Supreme Court also handed down a ruling today guaranteed to ease Republicans' pain a bit. The court ruled that our federal court system has no duty or authority to correct the aforementioned partisan gerrymandering. The courts are out of it. The court's ruling leaves it to Congress to correct the biased mapping of voting districts, a correction that will never occur so long as Republicans continue to rule the United States Senate. A number of related investigations spun off from the Mueller probe. Of the investigations left in play by Mueller as he wrapped up his specific assignment, seven of those spinoffs were stopped by Trump Attorney General William Barr. Barr closed these seven cases all at once, not even two weeks after Mueller had submitted his report. The seven cases involved, among others, AT&T, Twitter, and Facebook. They had all been ordered to provide documents to investigators. Now they don't have to. That's off now. William Barr killed all seven of those investigations in one fell swoop on April Fool's Day, 2019. After months of fruitless negotiations with Robert Mueller, all it took was a congressional subpoena to get him to testify. And when we learned Tuesday night that Mueller had been subpoenaed and that he had agreed to testify, an understandable skepticism lingered. Mueller himself indicated he might be a bit of a hostile witness. Mueller had made it clear when he submitted his redacted report to Congress and the public that all he had to say was on those pages. He said he didn't want to testify for Congress about that report and that if he were forced to do so, he would refuse to say anything that hadn't already been said in the report. He promised his testimony would be boring. Millions of Americans disagree. Millions of Americans will be watching TV on July 17th starting at 9 o'clock in the morning when Robert Mueller will testify in an open session of the House Intelligence Committee. After lunch... He'll skip over to the House Judiciary Committee to answer more questions, also in a televised session. Meanwhile, back at the Intel Committee, lawmakers will be grilling members of Mueller's staff in a closed-door hearing. Viewership of these public hearings is expected to break records, with many Americans already planning to take off work that day. Previous surveys have shown that the vast majority of Americans have been wanting to hear from the man himself since April. Yes, it's been nearly three months 
three months of spin by William Barr and Donald Trump who have twisted the true message of the Mueller report with no response from Mueller. Congressional Democrats hope to reverse the public's acceptance of the Trump-Barr explanation of Mueller's work. Mueller can now clarify in his own words what people have not, cannot, or will not read for themselves that he did not conclude there was no collusion, no obstruction. As one Democratic lawmaker put it, it's one thing to see the sheet music, it's another to hear the music. Democrats hope the public will finally hear the stark evidence that the president broke the law. They want the public to hear how the Trump campaign welcomed help from Russia to win the election and then committed at least 10 acts of illegal obstruction of justice against the investigation into that hostile foreign interference. People can finally hear Mueller say for himself that he could not exonerate this president. Unlike anything that has happened up to this moment, Robert Mueller's appearance under oath and on TV has the potential to move public opinion toward impeachment. The Red Hats won't buy it, but tens of millions of Americans in the middle likely will when they hear the truth about Trump. The public can now hear Mueller say that he didn't write a conclusion on obstruction because, quoting his report, because that is Congress's job in the context of impeachment, end quote. Aside from enlightening the public, Mueller's testimony may serve as a launching pad for impeachment, the impeachment of Donald Trump and his attorney general, William Barr, Mueller's ex-boss. Mueller's testimony will not be dramatic. The effect of what he says might be very dramatic. Will the White House try to stop him with executive privilege? Doesn't seem likely. Mueller's a private citizen now who has agreed to obey a lawful subpoena and being a by-the-book guy, he will. Although these things can turn in an instant, both Trump and Barr have said they have no objection to Mueller's testimony. That may be because Senator Lindsey Graham and others have vowed to cross-examine Mueller in a further attempt at discrediting him. And Mueller will not be boring when that happens. Mueller has proven in previous testimony on other cases that he can give as good as he gets He's clashed more than once with feisty Republicans, calling them out when they get the facts wrong. Stock up on popcorn, and more than ever, stay tuned. Despite video evidence that White House advisor Kellyanne Conway has repeatedly violated the Hatch Act, and despite the recommendation from government ethics officials that she be fired and barred from all federal jobs because of those violations, Trump is keeping her on. He's not only keeping her on, he's refusing to let her be grilled by Congress about the video documentation that she has repeatedly used her taxpayer-funded job to make public political statements. The Hatch Act bars all federal workers from letter carriers to presidential advisors from using their work hours or federal facilities to promote one party or disparage another. No politics on the job, period. Few people are ever prosecuted for violating this law, but they are almost always fired for it and banned from federal service. Kellyanne Conway has made a taxpayer-funded career out of political messaging from inside the White House itself and from its driveway. Conway has had more Hatch Act violation reports filed against her than any federal government employee in the past 30 years. Conway says she's only talked about the news of the day as she sees it mocking the law and the constitutional powers and duties of Congress, Conway sniped, 
let me know when the jail sentence starts for refusing to testify to a congressional investigation into her alleged Hatch Act violations. Conway now faces a subpoena. Like others in this administration, there could be a court fight over that subpoena. House lawmakers are considering also suing Don McGahn for noncompliance, and they could do that with others, including Kellyanne Conway. These are the court fights the Trump administration is not likely to win, but fighting the subpoenas buys it time and the chance for a negotiated settlement. Kellyanne Conway now joins former presidential advisor Hope Hicks, former White House counsel Don McGahn, the former head of White House security Carl Klein, and others in refusing to testify on orders from the White House. The stonewalling of the House investigation continues. But the House Judiciary Committee has reached a tentative agreement allowing it to question another former White House lawyer, Don McGahn's chief of staff, Annie Donaldson. Despite her continuing support of Trump, Donaldson once wrote in her notes, is this the beginning of the end when Trump fired James Comey? Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler says Ms. Donaldson had a front row seat to many of the instances outlined in the Mueller report dealing with obstruction. She is a key witness for the committee. We look forward to hearing from Ms. Donaldson. But even if Donaldson appears to give that testimony, she can be expected to follow the lead of Hope Hicks and refuse to answer any questions about her time in the West Wing. Although Hicks did answer some questions, she refused to answer 155 others. Hicks did tell Congress the 2016 campaign felt relief when WikiLeaks published Democratic emails that had been stolen by Russia. Relief, she explained, that we weren't the only campaign with issues is more accurate. Trump's issue at the time was the just-released Access Hollywood tape in which Trump bragged about grabbing women's vaginas. Before a White House lawyer cut her off, Ms. Hicks said she found it odd that Trump had told someone outside of government, former campaign advisor Corey Lewandowski, to order Attorney General Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself from the Russia investigation. Trump was ordering a non-government civilian to tell the Attorney General what to do. So Annie Donaldson might indeed answer a few questions, but more likely to refuse to answer the important ones. Or Ms. Donaldson could follow the lead of others in the Trump administration and just not show up. The less the nation accomplishes in stopping the madness, the more we learn about why it must stop. Never going to give you up, never going to let you down. In 2017... The usually confident Paul Manafort was scared, afraid he was actually going to prison for the crimes that he had committed. But scared as he was, Trump's former campaign manager was determined not to be a rat. He wanted to avoid prison or reduce his time there by cutting a deal with Robert Mueller's prosecutors, but Manafort was determined to do so without ever spilling any beans about Donald J. Trump or Trump's family. Newly released court documents show that Manafort texted They would want me to give up DT or family, especially JK, meaning Jared Kushner. Manafort texted this to Fox News Channel host Sean Hannity. Hannity replied, understand, there's nothing to give up on DT. What did JK do? Nothing, just like I did nothing. They want to make up S on both, replied Manafort. While commenting and allegedly reporting on Trump, Sean Hannity was offering a sympathetic ear to the former campaign chairman, who was trying to find a way to avoid his current fate, apparently spending the rest of his life in prison because he wouldn't, quote, give up DT or family. 
Manafort has now been moved from his cell in Pennsylvania to a cell in Manhattan where he awaits trial on New York State financial charges. Please know you are in my prayers, wrote Hannity to Manafort. I won't sell out, wrote Manafort, adding, I cannot allow them to win. Plus, wrote Manafort, I plan on helping on the re-elect. One thing Manafort won't be is a rat. On his way out of the courthouse this week, as he approaches his own prison sentence, former Trump National Security Advisor Mike Flynn had to step over a dead rat that had been left on the courthouse doorsteps. Also this week, the only New York bank that continued to lend money to Donald Trump was facing criminal charges. Deutsche Bank is now under criminal investigation for money laundering again and other crimes, including its dealings with Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, J.K., Jared Kushner. Deutsche Bank says it is cooperating with multiple investigations from the FBI, the Justice Department, and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. The German-based bank runs its U.S. anti-financial crime unit out of Jacksonville, Florida, a three-story building that offers a clear view of the FBI field office a couple of blocks away. The New York Times reports that Deutsche Bank employees have joked that when that FBI raid is imminent, they'll be able to see the agents coming. We got another reminder this week, as if we needed one, that the president and his supporters will not go quietly. He would certainly not go quietly if he were removed from office, but it could be just as noisy if he fails to get reelected. As the 2020 presidential campaign begins in earnest this week, there is reason to be concerned about a peaceful transition of power in the likely event that Trump loses. Trump told NBC's Chuck Todd over the weekend that he is not prepared to lose in 2020. No, said Trump, probably not, probably not. He certainly does not seem prepared to accept losing. He's already rejected his own polls that show him losing and losing badly. He's tweeted that the people may want him to stay in office beyond 2024 when that unlikely second term is scheduled to end, even though the people to whom he refers make up barely one-third of the voters. Presuming, based on current numbers, that Trump loses in 2020, even if he did accept the defeat, there's every indication his radicalized supporters would not, casting in stone the division of an already divided nation and perhaps worse. If he has to be dragged out of the White House, definitely worse. Trump gives reason to believe he won't go quietly. Even if he does accept defeat, we know from experience he will not do so graciously. Trump's very first political defeat came in 2016 when he lost the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz. Gracious for the cameras, right afterward, Trump took to the Twitter machine two days later to write, Ted Cruz didn't win Iowa, he stole it. That is why all polls were so wrong, why he got far more votes than anticipated. Bad, tweeted Trump. Throughout the campaign, Trump claimed the election was rigged as he constantly trailed Hillary Clinton in the polls. As the word rigged was repeated ad nauseum, many began to wonder if he would accept the 2016 election results and whether that might drive his rabid supporters even madder. He was asked by the much-criticized media straight up whether he would accept defeat. I will look at it at the time, said Trump, which was a way of saying, maybe not. Much as he is not a gracious loser, he is neither a gracious winner, refusing to take yes for an answer when he actually won the election in the Electoral College. 
Trump's ego was wounded because he had lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by about three million. That's when he set up a commission to investigate the millions of votes he repeatedly claimed had been cast by illegal immigrants. The commission found nothing and was dissolved. Trump's claim could not be proven because it was a lie. To this day, however, made apparent in a network news interview this week, Trump still believes his lie about why he lost the popular vote in 2016. There were a lot of votes cast, I don't believe, said Trump. So will Trump go quietly? Will he go at all? And how will the angry response of his followers manifest itself? In the words of George Washington, the peaceful transition of power is what will separate this country from every country in the world. Will it? Will it again in 2020? Now that Donald Trump has said that he is inclined to accept help from a foreign government in his 2020 election campaign, Senate Republicans have let it be known they're okay with that. Because it is that Republican Senate that this past week killed a bill requiring campaigns to notify the FBI and the Federal Election Commission about offers from and efforts by foreign governments to give their campaign help. Campaigns would be required to report even contacts with foreign nationals who offer help. But it was Republican Marsha Blackburn who spoke for the majority in the Senate when she said the proposed rules, quote, go overboard. When it comes to foreign help, you might want to listen, said Trump to ABC. There's nothing wrong with listening, said Trump, adding, they have information, I think I'd take it. Democrats say they will again try to pass the FIRE Act, short for Foreign Influence Reporting in Elections. Despite his bankruptcies, debts, and unpaid loans, money follows Donald Trump wherever he goes, especially during his presidency. It follows him especially to his resort properties, most notably the one in Florida, which is where the president went after his so-called kickoff rally for the 2020 campaign. He did not return to the White House or even the official retreat at Camp David, both maintained on the taxpayer dime. Instead, he went to his Doral Resort outside of Miami using additional taxpayer dimes. It was the 126th time he's been to one of his properties since taking office, each visit at taxpayer's expense. But he doesn't go there just for the golf. He goes because the money follows him there. He went last week after his campaign rally to host and be the guest of honor at a fundraiser for his campaign. He was also the hotelier and caterer to the many who would attend the event, the Trump Organization pocketing the profits. And Trump has even grander plans as a president who profits from his position. He wants to hold the worldwide G7 Economic Summit at his resort. Taxpayers would cover the expenses. Trump would pocket the profits. He's been billing the U.S. government since February of 2017 for the services he provides for himself. Mar-a-Lago is also where Trump met with Chinese President Xi Jinping in April of 2017 at a cost of the taxpayers of $30,000 if you include Rex Tillerson's beachfront VIP suite with the double-sized jacuzzi. Public records show that several Republican groups have been paying to hold events at Trump's properties. The Republican National Committee makes it a point to do as much business at Trump properties as it can. In the lobby of Trump's D.C. hotel, that's a good place to run into Attorney General William Barr or White House Advisor Kellyanne Conway for those who seek audience with his administration. And when he travels, Trump goes out of his way 
to go out of his way at your expense. On his way to Asia, he stopped at his resort in Waikiki. En route between Ireland and France, he stopped at his resort in Turnberry, Scotland, even though it was hundreds of miles off course. The best estimates put Trump's presidential profits at more than one and a half million dollars after the dozens and dozens of trips he's taken. But with only limited records available on that, the profit figure is actually much higher than one and a half million dollars. As for that fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago, after Trump officially launched his campaign last week, he raised about six million dollars. Donald Trump stood next to his then-wife Ivana when he met E. Jean Carroll in 1987. I've never met this person in my life, Trump said of Ms. Carroll this week after she publicly accused him of raping her. Carroll becomes the 20th woman to accuse Trump of sexual harassment and worse, most of the women coming forward after the release of the Access Hollywood tape in which Trump brags he likes to grab women by their vaginas because, quote, when you're a star, they let you do it. Carol, a respected writer, says Trump penetrated her briefly in the winter of 1995-1996 in a department store dressing room after Trump told her he was shopping for lingerie for a girlfriend. Jean Carroll says this is not about politics. Quoting her, I'm barely political. I can't name you the candidates who are running right now. I'm not organized. I'm just fed up. I'm sick of it, said Carroll to Anderson Cooper on CNN, adding, with all the women, it's the same. Fake news, said Trump this week, claiming he'd never met Ms. Carroll, despite the photographic evidence to the contrary. She's trying to sell a new book, said Trump, adding, it should be sold in the fiction section. Trump, as usual, accused his accuser of lying. Totally lying, he said. I'll say it with great respect. Number one, she's not my type. Not my type, he said, as if there is a type he would rape. Not my type, he said, not realizing that many of us already know that rape is almost never a sexual crime. It's a crime of violence in the rapist's desperate need for control and power. After that Access Hollywood, I just grab them tape surfaced, Trump held a news conference to try to repair any possible damage to his voter base. Among the women seated next to him in 2016 was Juanita Broderick, who has also written a book that includes her account of a sexual assault by Bill Clinton. Before that book, under oath in a sworn deposition, Ms. Broderick denied that that assault had ever happened, but for the book, she gave a different story. And she was at Donald Trump's side in 2016 when she told reporters, Bill Clinton raped me. The following evening, she told a Trump rally that Clinton was, quote, the worst abuser of women ever to sit in the Oval Office. And to work Hillary into it, Broderick told the Red Hats, Hillary Clinton threatened me after Bill Clinton raped me. Republicans insisted that Broderick be heard and that her account be respected. They have not responded to the claims of E. Jean Carroll. What stands out about the headline news of late is the distinct aroma of meanness and cruelty, fueled and sometimes directed by the President of the United States. What Salon.com's Bob Seska has noticed is that this president can dish it out, but he can't take it. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Thanks to Donald Trump, America is now in the business of running prison camps for toddlers. 
you know, because life begins at conception but ends at birth. Women seeking abortion services in Missouri's last remaining Planned Parenthood facility were forced to undergo mandatory and medically unnecessary vaginal probes thanks to a Republican Trumper named Randall Williams, director of the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. African Americans continue to be assaulted and murdered by the police tasked with protecting them. Untold thousands of black voters will be tossed off voter rolls, either by hackers or by Republican voter suppression efforts. Tens of millions of Americans are in danger of losing their health insurance if Trump's Justice Department successfully refuses to defend the Affordable Care Act in court. Our electoral system continues to be disrupted by hostile foreign attackers without any intervention by the White House. And soon, we'll begin to see scores of Latinos rounded up and hauled off to all new internment camps before being randomly deported. We're teetering on the verge of yet another land war in Asia, as well as teetering on the verge of another recession, thanks to Trump's instability and his spastic trade war. Meanwhile, powerful leaders with their hands on the levers of democracy refuse to step up to the challenge of thwarting a new kind of political despot, Trump. And so his monstrous behavior becomes further entangled in our politics, reaching or perhaps surpassing the point of no return. We're all trapped in this alternative timeline in which Biff Tannen is president and fascism is circulating around the globe, one tweet at a time. Knowing all of this, you'll have to forgive me if I don't weep for Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, you know, given how everything is rigged against them. You might have seen the video already of Bernie Sanders being asked whether he'd drop out of the race if he has no chance of winning enough delegates for the nomination. During an interview with MSNBC's Casey Hunt, Bernie refused to accept that he might not be the nominee, noting that some people have said he would have defeated Trump in the general, quote, if the system weren't rigged against me, unquote. Good Lord, when will the world take its boot off the throats of aging white men? But when it comes to self-pity and a bottomless persecution complex, no one tops Trump. Our current president works in self-pity and victimhood the way Eddie Van Halen works in hammer-ons and cocaine. I've honestly never observed a whinier adult in real life or in politics. That so many red hats think Trump is a stud muffin who asserts his alpha might to crush the puny scrotums of anyone who challenges his authority betrays his supporters as being grossly misled about the character of their bitchy messiah. Yet while so many people are suffering, while our constitutional order suffers along with them, Trump was busy Wednesday whining about how no one can follow him on Twitter and that Google is, quote, trying to rig the election. Yes, another entitled white guy who insists something is rigged against him. You know who the system is really rigged against? Children who come to America to live free of persecution or death and instead are quickly rounded up and punished in ways that far from match any perceived crimes. That's who. Trump was in full screech mode during a segment with Fox News anchor and Lando's co-pilot in Return of the Jedi, Maria Bartiromo, who seemed genuinely perplexed by the motor mouth on the phone, the president, who was so angry and relentless that I couldn't help but to wonder whether he had a full diaper or if he needs to start breaking the provigil in half or both. Nevertheless, Trump ranted about Google rigging the election against him because of a new video created by prankster propagandist James O'Keefe. The new O'Keefe video is, like always, heavily edited to make it seem as if a low-level Google employee, Jen Janai, confessed that her employers are manipulating the platform to hurt Trump's re-election chances. 
A careful and non-conspiratorial review of the video clearly shows that Janai was talking about Russian interference and Google's efforts to prevent it. Janai also wrote the following for Medium, quote, Project Veritas, O'Keefe's production company, has edited the video to make it seem that I am a powerful executive who was confirming that Google is working to alter the 2020 election. On both counts, this is absolute unadulterated nonsense, of course. In a casual restaurant setting, I was explaining how Google's trust and safety team, a team I used to work on, is working to help prevent the types of online foreign interference that happened in 2016. Google has been very public about the work that our teams have done since 2016 on this, so it's hardly a revelation, unquote. But it's easier for Trump and his loyalists to believe that there's a vast conspiracy against a man who lies about literally everything and always has. As for Twitter and this alleged plot to keep people from following him, Trump is clearly distorting the normal functioning of Twitter to make it seem nefarious. His now predictable tactic of merely pointing at something normal and shouting, look it, look it, look it, with an accusatory tone. That's all his flying monkeys need. No evidence, just the suggestion of a plot. The real rigging of the previous election was orchestrated by Trump's allies in Russia and by Trump's allies in the Republican Party. And we shouldn't forget how Russia was apparently also working to elevate Bernie against Hillary Clinton in the primaries. Knowing this and knowing the worsening nightmare in parts of this country, there are millions of us who are being actively screwed with our pants on by privileged, entitled white men. That's the truth. No matter how much Trump and Trump-adjacent leaders play this why-is-everyone-against-me nonsense, do not believe them. I assure you, they will be fine just as long as they have their whoobies nearby. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. The NRA signs off. The kids are growing horns. The new female Viagra and a righteous campaign of stupid in the final segment after this. If you think programs like this one are important, then you must know how important it is to support these kinds of shows. I'd be very grateful if you'd use the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping for homeschool and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast free and independent and keeps it going. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click the Amazon logo. You'll land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old shopping bookmark. Once you've done that, I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Now, if you choose not to use my Amazon link for whatever reason, then you can support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. Thank you. In Wascom, a small town in East Texas along the Louisiana border, your unborn baby will be safe. No one who is not yet born shall be harmed in the making of this town, Wascom, Texas. Because the Wascom Town Council has voted to make itself, quote, a sanctuary city for the unborn. Although this city ordinance contradicts the U.S. Supreme Court's legalization of abortion, it does not mean any clinics will have to close in Wascom because Wascom does not have and has never had an abortion clinic. 
But so it was decided at a Tuesday night meeting by a unanimous vote, every member of that council, a man. Five white men making a decision most women insist is theirs to make. These cowboys are ready to start a court fight to defend their law, even though their mayor warned them the city does not have the money to pay the lawyers. As he told the rest of the council, the city don't have that kind of money. And then he joined the others in passing the unborn sanctuary ordinance. Wascom is breaking new ground in Texas, but was inspired by a small town in New Mexico you have heard of, Roswell. Roswell, New Mexico. Back in March, the council there made its town a sanctuary city for the unborn, and while it was at it, a Second Amendment sanctuary city. Despite these local laws, superseding these local laws is the indisputable fact that for now abortion remains legal and a constitutional right in all 50 states and the towns within. But these days, women aren't so sure. The same right-wing militia group that occupied a federal preserve in Oregon three years ago may be the reason the Oregon legislature shut down on Friday. The president of the state Senate had gotten word from the state police of a credible threat against him and all the other state senators who were in the Senate chambers, which at that point were just Democrats. With a supermajority, Oregon Democrats were ready to pass a major piece of environmental and climate change legislation, a cap-and-trade bill that would also boost jobs in the alternative power industry. Conservatives who dominate rural Oregon say the bill will raise fuel prices on truckers and loggers and farmers and fisheries. And although Democrats have that supermajority, they could not pass their bill without a quorum present. And that wasn't possible because the state's Republican senators had skipped across the state line to Idaho. The Democratic Oregon governor who plans to sign this climate change bill had been infuriated and sent the state police to round up those refugee Republicans and return them to the Capitol, where they would be forced to remain in their seats to watch Democrats pass the environmental bill. One of the Republicans, they never caught them. One of the Republicans who skipped town was ready to defy the state police who were tracking him. Send bachelors, he warned, and come heavily armed. As this report was published, 11 Oregon Republican state senators were still hiding out in an undisclosed location, presumably in Idaho, saying they are not ready to return to work. They say they may remain there until after the Senate session ends on Sunday, finding a way as a minority to block the will of the majority that begins addressing global warming. Vice President Mike Pence restated the Trump administration's stand on climate change over the weekend when he told CNN's Jake Tapper, what we won't do is hamstring energy in this country, raising the cost of utility rates for working families across the country. Again, the Trump administration, through Mike Pence, was saying that protecting the fossil fuel industry was more important than the health of Americans or the future of this planet. He was saying that Americans would be unwilling to spend a few more pennies for alternative power, assuming it would be more at all. The vice president told Tapper the administration is waiting for the science on climate change. In reality, it's science that's waiting on the Trump administration. 
it was the day after Courtney Taylor's husband had been arrested for allegedly trying to run her off the road near their homes in Polk County, Florida. Speaking by phone at his bond hearing, she said her husband, 35-year-old Joseph Irby, was dangerous. The judge released Irby on bail and ordered him not to possess, carry, or use any weapons or ammunition. The judge granted a temporary restraining order for Irby to stay away from his wife. But there was already a restraining order in effect when he allegedly tried to run his wife off the road. And Courtney Taylor knew that her husband had guns and she knew where he kept them and she knew the police would not take them from him. Before he could make it home from court, Courtney broke into her husband's house and took his guns because she knew authorities would not because she still feared for her safety as she had told the court the previous day. She was then arrested on charges of grand theft of a firearm. Mr. Irby told police his wife is a man-hater. She spent nearly a week in jail. Protesters appeared outside the jail demanding Courtney's release. Dozens of people poured into the courtroom for her bail hearing, her family, her friends, her pastor, and other members of the church. The state attorney in Polk County has heard now from the state attorney in Florida's Hillsborough County a recommendation to drop the charges against Courtney Taylor. In 35 states, there are laws that allow those convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence or those under restraining orders to continue to buy and own guns. There's a federal law that makes it illegal for a violent crime convict to buy guns, but that federal law does not give local police the authority to confiscate those weapons. The man seated next to Jon Stewart as the comedian and 9-11 first responders begged Congress for money to continue funding their medical care is now confined to his deathbed. The money in the existing fund is nearly gone, and benefits are being cut. And with that, Luis Alvarez, who has battled cancer for years since the attack, checked into hospice and gave his final interview. After 69 rounds of chemotherapy, he no longer knew what year this is. He does not know the name of his hospice. This 9-11 hero says he is not in a lot of pain and comfortable with his family by his side. Others await his fate with other cancers. Prostate and colorectal cancers and others have turned up in firefighters and cops. More than a dozen men who spent time near the collapsed World Trade Center towers have been diagnosed with breast cancer. More people have now died from 9-11 related illnesses than died in the actual attack, most of them first responders. Luis Alvarez's case is a preview of what is yet to come, which is why he gave his NYPD badge to his comrades, who then gave it to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. After getting a good scolding from Jon Stewart, video of which went far and wide, the House Judiciary Committee approved the funding extension inside of 24 hours. The full House is expected to pass it in July, which is just four days away. But Stewart had also scolded Mitch McConnell, who he accused of using the funding of 9-11 medical care as leverage to get things McConnell wanted passed. And when McConnell didn't get his way, it was the 9-11 first responders who suffered. On Tuesday night, Luis Alvarez posted on Facebook, So now I'm resting, and I'm at peace. I will continue to fight until the good Lord decides it's time. I will try to do a few more interviews to keep a light on our fight for the benefits we all justly deserve. Please take care of yourselves and each other. On receiving Alvarez's badge, Mitch McConnell promised to extend that medical funding 
sometime in August. Well, said McConnell on Fox News, many things in Congress happened at the last minute. NRA TV goes dark. The National Rifle Association TV channel has been shut down. The nation's biggest gun lobby is still in crisis mode with shifting leadership and a tighter budget. It has fired its longtime advertising agency, Ackerman McQueen. It was that firm, you'll recall, that gave NRA its modern identity. It was Ackerman McQueen that gave the NRA Charlton Heston's slogan, From My Cold Dead Hands. Heston has been cold and dead for years, and now the deal that brought together the NRA with that Oklahoma ad agency is as well. And it was that agency that ran NRA TV which has now signed off for the last time. Kids are growing horns, bone spurs at the backs of their skulls, apparently from excessive cell phone use, according to an Australian study. And now we have seen the x-rays. The horn develops at the top of the neck after long hours of bending forward to look down at a phone. It may affect our posture in the future and after all that trouble of learning to walk upright. San Francisco has become the first U.S. city to ban the sales of all e-cigarettes. San Francisco is the home of Juul, America's biggest e-cig maker. Juul has put 50 grand into a campaign to regulate instead of banning vaping products. If that referendum passes, it will supersede the new ordinance that banned e-cigarettes altogether. We also learned this week that a vape pen exploded in the face of a 17-year-old boy in Nevada, breaking his jaw. There have been multiple surgeries now to try to repair his jaw, which had to be wired shut for six weeks, followed by another operation to remove the wires. The boy is now fully recovered, except for the four teeth he's still missing, teeth he cannot afford to replace without the proper insurance. There have been over 200 explosions involving e-cigarettes in the past 10 years. 133 people have been injured, 38 of them hospitalized with burns, shrapnel wounds, and broken bones. In some cases, these vape pens, the ones that exploded, had been modified. The FDA has approved a new prescription drug that's being called the female Viagra. It's a self-injected drug for women who have not yet reached menopause, who are frustrated because they have little or no sexual desire. That could be as many as one out of every 10 women. The medical community now recognizes female sexual dysfunction as a serious issue. Taken 45 minutes before intimacy, the drug activates sex-related brain receptors and lowers inhibitions. A pill that had been hailed as the female Viagra never really took off, because it had to be taken daily and it was slow to kick in and does not mix with alcohol. Julia Hawkins completed both events when she competed in both the 50 and 100-yard dashes this week at the National Senior Games in Albuquerque. Ms. Hawkins is now the oldest woman to ever compete on an American track. Julia Hawkins, still getting it done at age 103, there's a gray seal in Scotland that can sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Researchers say seals can mimic human sounds because they have vocal tracks that are very similar to our own. They hope to better understand the evolution of learning with these seals and the development of language and how to better treat human speech disorders. 
October 11th, 1973 is the date that Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker say they were along the bank of Mississippi's Pascagoula River when the aliens appeared. They say the aliens pulled them aboard their spacecraft and gave them each a half-hour medical exam before returning them to the bank of the Pascagoula River. Calvin published a book about it last year. His friend Charlie Hickson died eight years ago. And although their story has been questioned, there is now an historical marker noting the spot of an alleged alien abduction along the banks of the Pascagoula River. Illinois this week became the 11th state to legalize recreational marijuana. Perhaps more importantly, it wipes clean the records of as many as 800,000 people who were convicted on minor possession charges. The Illinois law gives minority-owned businesses an edge as retail stores prepare to open, and one-fourth of the tax money raised by legal recreational pot sales will go toward development in the state's poorest communities. It's a small Reparation to the community hit hardest by the failed war on drugs. Illinois' new law goes into effect on January 1st. The full legalization of marijuana failed in the New York State Senate, but lawmakers did manage to expand decriminalization. Possession of two ounces or less will be a violation, now not a crime, with fines as low as 50 bucks. New York City prosecutors are no longer pursuing simple possession cases and have been working to vacate old, outstanding warrants, and to vacate low-level convictions. Oh, the times they are a-changing. At age 75 and three months after heart surgery, Mick Jagger's still getting it done. In Chicago, Jagger returned to the stage energetically after a heart valve replacement surgery that forced him to postpone the current tour. The Rolling Stones formed more than a half-century ago. Friday's opening show marked the eighth time the Stones had played Chicago's Soldier Field. They'll tour all the cities on their original planned tour with one new one, a stop in New Orleans. After a career writing books, sometimes described as airport reading or bubble bath reading or porn for women, author Judith Krantz has died at her home in Bel Air at age 91. She was popular. 85 million copies of her books sold in more than 50 languages. Most of them became made-for-TV movies. Krantz's career began with the publishing of her first novel at age 50. Unlike her predecessor, Jacqueline Suzanne, Judith Krantz added one more popular passion to her novels, a passion for high-end shopping. Toy Story 4 is, of course, the biggest movie of the week, opening with more than $118 million. No other movie even cracked $15 million including Child's Play, Aladdin, and the new Men in Black. The Secret Life of Pets nosedived to fifth place. Rocket Man, the only movie in the top ten that is neither a sequel nor a prequel nor a reboot, hangs in at sixth place. Shaft is tenth with less than $4 million. Clicking on the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com gets you previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, and further supports this program. Since next Thursday is Independence Day, there won't be a new edition here next week, but I will return on Thursday, July 11th. Please join me in finding a way to express our love for this country and the things for which it truly stands. As with your friends and relatives, you can be mad at your country and still love it. And finally, more than 20,000 Christians in the United States signed a petition to get a TV show canceled. 
The show is a streaming series based on a fantasy novel from nearly three decades ago called Good Omens. It's about an angel and a demon, representatives of heaven and hell, who become partners in an effort to stop the coming of the Antichrist and the unfortunate subsequent apocalypse. It's a fun little adaptation of the book that has a sweet kid cast as the apparent Antichrist and Oscar winner Francis McDormand as God, of course. Christians who had not seen the show but who had heard about it were outraged, complaining that it mocks God's wisdom, promotes evil, and takes another step to make Satanism appear normal. These 20,000 Christians were corralled by the Return to Order campaign, a spinoff from the U.S. Foundation for a Christian Civilization, and they all signed this petition demanding that Netflix take the show off the air. There are two things these Christian soldiers did not know. They did not know it was only to be a six-episode miniseries that would, in effect, cancel itself. And they clearly did not know that the show isn't on Netflix. It's on Amazon Prime Video, an advertising affiliate for this newscast. Promise me you won't tell them, tweeted the author of the book. Okay, we promise not to make any more, tweeted Netflix. Hey, Netflix, tweeted Amazon Video, we'll cancel Stranger Things if you cancel Good Omens. The Christian group has now acknowledged its error, apologized to Netflix, and is now directing its holy wrath at Amazon. No one tell them that a show called Lucifer about the devil's arrival on Earth was the most binged-watched show on Netflix just two weeks ago. In April, this same Christian group called on Walmart to stop selling satanic products after protests last year over what the group calls a blasphemous ice cream called Sweet Jesus. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for shopping my sponsors and the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back July 11th with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.